It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. And I am very, very glad that you made it to class this morning because this morning we are turning our attention to reforming the justice system and looking specifically at sentencing review and conviction integrity units. There are some of them set up in prosecutor offices across the country, but not in all prosecutor offices. We'll talk about some of that later. And as we learned in previous conversations, prosecutors have immense power in the justice system and therefore they are central to reducing mass incarceration, changing our frame in terms of what justice is. And so joining us at the front of the class for a discussion on the role that the units can play in restorative justice and prosecutor's offices is Marilyn J. Mosby, the 25th state's attorney for Baltimore City. She was the youngest chief prosecutor of any major city at the time of her election in 2015. She's the state's attorney in Baltimore, and she has a passion to effectuate change by driving a more just, efficient, and fair criminal justice system. Please join me in welcoming, for the first time at the front of the class, state's attorney Marilyn Mosby. Welcome to Sunday Civics. Thank you for having me, Joy. I am so incredibly honored to even be in the presence of this political strategist, consultant, public speaker, social (laughs) justice advocate. You are the woman. And so I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, my God. So all of my friends who absolutely adore you, who are lawyers and, you know, assistant DAs and everything like that, they were so jealous. They were like, can can I be on when you interview? I was like, no, this is not a live stipend. <laughs> you can't be on for this Long period of time is only for you, only for you. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time. And we're actually going to start where we always start with every guest is by you telling us the story of your first civic action. So that's a really great question. And I tried to like think about that before I got on. And one of the things that I thought about, you know, I was part of one of the longest standing desegregation programs in the country where I was in a busing program. I was born and raised in Boston, but I was bused to one of the richest towns outside of the city of Baltimore, which is approximately an hour outside of the city of Baltimore, to Dover, Sherborne. And I started when I was in the second grade. So imagine a six-year-old with no teeth, like going into a classroom and into a school where I was the only Black child in the entire school. And I can just tell you that that was a very sort of eye-opening experience because you, at six years old, you are subjecting yourself and you're exposed to the socioeconomic disparities in education, right? And so, you know, what I had to learn very early on is that, you know, the responsibility of being a Black person in a system is like, you take that burden on. I wanted to be a positive representation of Black people. And so one of the things that I I can remember 
you know, is that like even in high school, so from second grade until I graduated high school, I was only one of three black women who graduated from my high school, top of my class. And I became spotlight editor of my high school newspaper where I wrote an article that won national sort of acclaim and I got a recognition, which was called Black History is American History. And it's centered around a trip that I took with an organization associated with the American Civil Liberties Union called Project Hip Hop. Highways into the past history, organizing, and power. We traveled over like 5,000 miles to the South and we looked at the civil rights movement and, you know, looked at some of the barriers to racial progress. And we then went back to Massachusetts and talked about our experience. And so this article centered around Black history being American history and recognizing that Black people are the foundation of this nation. And so there shouldn't be any sort of distinction or separation. And that for me, and as I stated, I, I won an award for this, this, this article, you know, I was recognized, but that was my first sort of like civic engagement, if I could say. I, I brought like, you know, diversity workshops to the school. I brought, you know, folks that could talk about the racial inequity within not just like society, but with especially within the criminal justice system. And I did that in high school. So that was that was my first sort of civic engagement. <laughs> I'm a little kid, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, because one, because I know so many of us like that, like I was like that as well. <laughs> so and I feel like there are we all in maybe in friend units, maybe know of someone who was that person. Feel like at their school, I was recently talking to, you know, one of my younger cousins and they were telling me how they be they, their first knowledge outside of our family of, you know, racial justice and social justice or whatever was because I would bring them to meetings and, you know, bring, bring them on campus because they were younger when I was in college. And that was their kind of first thing. And I have friends the same, the same way, like friends from high school, friends from high school and others were like, yeah, Joy was always dragging us to some <laughs> meeting. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, or doing something. We was doing, you know, speakers and things like that. So I, I absolutely love that story. So, it's so crazy um, because you know what, Joy, my superlative, and it's like when I charge the offices in Freddie Gray, like, all these news organizations actually went to Boston and pulled my yearbook as if I was lying. But somebody else, you know how you write like superlatives? You don't write them for yourself. Other people write. Right. And it was so crazy because they said, Marilyn Mosby will be the next Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. And... I can't remember what else, but like who is going to be on the front stage talking about issues of race. And that's, you know, something that I've continued to do. I, you know, I have a nickname for my college friends. They thought they, it was a teasing, taunting them thing for them. They called me Mbutu. Like it, <laughs> it was just like, you just like whatever. And I was just like, and now look at y'all. We'll talk more about that when we come back with more Sunday Civics. Go, 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 go
must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy, and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome I back to Sunday Civics. You know. Joining us at the front of the class is Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for Baltimore City. The lesson that you are helping us with today is talking about sentencing review units, conviction integrity units. We had your colleague here in Brooklyn on the show and he, you know, introduced the audience to these units, but it was very brief. And I wanted to do sort of uh, a more deep dive into what these units are, what they can do. And so we're discussing your office's sentencing review unit and conviction integrity unit. And I wanted you to start by sort of talking about what these units are, why are they different, what the two different, you know, divisions are and and, and what they do. So I, I think it's really important that like one of the things that I had to like learn and I learned from a personal sort of experience in that like my cousin was killed right outside of my home in broad daylight. He was mistaken as a neighborhood drug dealer. If it wasn't for the cooperation of a neighbor who, you know, cooperated with police, testified in court, my family wouldn't have received any sort of justice, right? My grandfather was one of the founding members of the first Black police organization in Massachusetts. So we had an idea and an understanding of what law enforcement meant, but I had never understood, like, the complacency that we have in society with Black men being killed, right? And so going into the criminal justice system... I saw the number of African-American men coming in and out in chains and shackles. And I said, what is the system and how do you reform it? And so that was my mission. I used that sort of traumatizing experience that a lot of people in urban America experience, right, to say, spawn my passion to reform it. What is the system and how do we change it? How do we ensure that the 17-year-old cousin, my cousin that was killed, is valued, but how do we get to that 17-year-old that took his life, right? And so one of the things that I understood is that I wanted to go into law, but I didn't know what type of law I wanted to go into. And it was after that experience that I, I understood that prosecutors are one of the most important stakeholders in the criminal justice system. They decide who's going to be charged, what they be charged with, what sentence recommendations they're going to make. They make a determination as to whether somebody's going to get into the criminal justice system in the first place. Right. And so understanding that awesome amount of power, what I also recognize is that 95 percent of the prosecutors in this country that make those decisions every single day are white. Seventy nine percent of them are white men. And as a woman of color, I represent one percent of all elected prosecutors in the country, which is totally unacceptable. But what I also recognize is that prosecutors have historically played and contributed to the epidemic of mass incarceration and racial inequity in this country. And we have a responsibility. If you look it up, our, our code of ethics as a prosecutor is justice over convictions. We have a responsibility to right the wrongs and, and, and end mass incarceration and racial inequity. So when you talk about like these units, right, like the whether it's a sentencing review unit and we'll get into it, what is a sentencing review unit is or a conviction integrity unit is one of the things that has to like you have to put into context and into perspective 
is that the United States of America is an outlier in the world. And in my state, the state of Maryland, it's an outlier in the nation when it comes to punishing people, particularly people of color, right? So America, like you know this, America is the largest jailer of people in the world with the punitive severity and excessive sort of nature of sentences disproportionately impacting black and brown people. That's what I saw when I went into those courtrooms. In my state of Maryland, African-Americans make up a mere 30% of the state population, yet we comprise 70% of the state's prison population. That, that's more than double the national average, right? So what we're attempting to do, and it's incredibly important for you to put that into context, because when you look at data, almost 80% of the 2,200 prisoners in the state of Maryland currently serving life sentences throughout our state are Black. 94% of, of the more than 800 prisoners sentenced to life in the city that I represent are Black. And so when you consider the status quo, that's, that's neither just nor sustainable. And as a prosecutor with a mission of justice over convictions, you have a responsibility to ensure that you're pursuing justice and that this unit that I've created, which is a sentencing review unit, will review and, when appropriate, revise sentences that are incompatible with current practices. Starting starting with that, this the, the sentencing review, and even the conviction integrity piece, when we had Eric Gonzalez on, he talked about, one, you have to convince prosecutors that they even need to have a wrong, you know, like a conviction integrity or sentencing in the first place. And that there is this sense of finality that when prosecutors prosecute a case, that it's done. Let's hear a little bit of what he said. This is Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez. First of all, you have to convince prosecutors that thousands and thousands of prosecutors across this country, you first have to convince DAs that they're supposed to have a wrongful conviction unit, that part of their mm -hmm. job is actually to make sure we get it right and we, get, when we make a mistake or we learn new information, we go back and correct miscarriages of justice. In Brooklyn, you know, we have one of the best conviction review units. we vacated 26 wrongful convictions. We're doing that work. I just hired new lawyers. So that work has to be done. And that's something that has to be promoted because most district attorney's offices across the United States still do not do this work. Mm. So there has to be a recognition that A, like every other business, people make mistakes. We make mistakes as prosecutors. We have to be open to go back and say, we've made a mistake. We have to fix it. We have to correct it regardless of the fact that someone's reputation may be injured. Because mm. that's justice. Because it's just. And we also have to have a, a recognition that's actually different. I mean, that there's a concept in the law of finality when a case is right. over. Right. I don't believe in that. I believe that my my obligation as a prosecutor is to make sure I can stand by a conviction 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And if something changed in between, we have to go back and take a look at it. What are your thoughts on what he said? So, I mean, when you look at a district attorney, Eric Gonzalez, who is a, a good friend of mine, 
before I became state's attorney, I actually traveled across the country to different district attorney's offices to see what best practices we could employ in Baltimore. And I met with the legendary Ken Thompson and Eric Gonzalez. This was like his right hand. And one of the things that I understood and what I recognize and that I can appreciate that Eric said is that He's 100% correct. There's a resistance among many prosecutors to kind of dedicate resources to conviction integrity units, right? These are units that are dedicated to like reinvestigations into claims of actual innocence. There are so many and, and far too many Black men that have been wrongly convicted and incarcerated for crimes they did not commit. And so if you think about that dynamic, in, in, in my tenure, we've already exonerated 12 individuals, right, who have cumulatively served, Joy, over 300 years in prison for crimes they did not commit. Do you think about the toll that is taken on them, not just individually, but on their families, right? Like, our first sort of conviction integrity case was a, a young man by the name of Malcolm Bryant. And my my office created the first conviction integrity unit in the entire state of Maryland, where we're doing investigations into claims of actual innocence. But what was really jarring to me is like, it was based on DNA evidence that clearly this wasn't the individual that had committed the crime, even though he served 17 years in jail. What was jarring to me was when I met with that family, they asked to meet with me after he had been, you know, released. But less than a year after he was released, he died. He died because he was attempting to transition into society and he couldn't get a social security card. He couldn't get an identification. He couldn't get a job. He couldn't transition to a life that was taken away from him. And he was young, but he died like just from trying to acclimate himself to society. That is scary. Right. And so one of the things that the family met with me and they said was the poor mom and the poor, the poor sister said, hey, we appreciated the fact that you had a unit that was created to do this and we were able to get our loved one back. But when we got him back, it wasn't our loved one. You know, I often think about that because you see the headlines and the, the news story of someone being released after 20 years or 10 years wrongful for you know, conviction or others. And my husband and I often think about like, what support is that person getting? So Joy, so, you're absolutely right. Like, and, and, and at, in that instance where you have an individual who has served time for 17 years for a crime they didn't commit, it, it didn't dawn on me until I sat with that mother and that sister who told me like, like, thank you for creating a unit that would even look into this. But the man that came home was not the man that, like, we knew. He was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He needed mental health treatment, right? Like, this, this is an experience that not just affected him, but it infected everybody, affected everybody in his family, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that I took away from that experience, because that was my first exoneree, is that, yes, as a prosecutor, your mission is justice over convictions. But what else? 
can we do to ensure that those individuals that are wrongly convicted and incarcerated, they are victims of the criminal justice system, right? Yeah. What can we do to help them acclimate back into society? So I created a program called Resurrection After Exoneration. I have the leadership of a stellar, skilled prosecutor who, like, is a beast. Lauren Lipscomb, she's now one of my deputy attorneys in the state's attorney's office, where we partnered with the University of Maryland, and we partnered to ensure that we could get not only an ID and a social security card and, you know, the, the requisite sort of employment skills and, and the, the, the mental health treatment that they need, right, and the support system that they need. I've had 12 individuals cumulatively serving 300 years in jail for crimes they didn't commit. And, like, that experience is something that is very unique to them. And that they need the support when it's it's like the real Shawshank Redemption. You come out and it's your whole world is totally different. Right? We got yeah. social media. We got all these other issues, I, 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 a global pandemic. And you're just trying to, to survive and to make it through. And these are my guys. We started a campaign in October called The Faces of Actual Innocence, where you can see the the, the men who have been exonerated under my administration, where like these are actual claims of innocence. We fought in Annapolis, which is, you know, where we 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 deem the laws that are appropriate for the state. And 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 we passed legislation, but we fought for mandatory compensation for these guys. They deserve so much more. And so, you know, that's that's what we're attempting to do. And and you don't have that in typical prosecutors' offices. But you don't typically have, based on the numbers, black women who don't need cultural sensitivity training or, you know, uh, implicit bias training to know how black people in this country are treated by not just police, but the criminal justice system. Yeah. I want to go to something that you mentioned in talking about the concept of justice. This is something that even in my own life, I am, you know, thinking a lot about and and. and reforming in my own mind in terms of what justice is, because we've been conditioned for a long time that justice is somebody is arrested and serves time or executed for the wrong that they committed, particularly in the criminal justice system, right? And over this past decade, I would say, even in my own mind, I'm trying to think, is that really justice? And I'm interested in your concept, particularly as a prosecutor, your concept of what justice is, because you said the phrase justice over conviction, you know, by any means. And so just wanted to get your your level set on that. So, no, I appreciate the question. And if you look on my website, if you look at our vision and our mission, one of the things that I do when I recruit my prosecutors is that they have to understand and they have to recognize that, like, this is not just a case processing sort of system. And for far too long, that's exactly what a prosecutor's office was. Like they measured their success based off of convictions, right? Right. The number of convictions. We, my mission is justice over convictions. You are responsible for doing the right thing. And justice doesn't look the same in every single case. It may mean a heinous sort of mandatory sentence in one case, right? But it may mean that we don't, allow somebody in another case 
to even get into the criminal justice system. And so, you know, that's a, a very sort of delicate balance and you need people who understand that. And so, you know, from my perspective, that's that's what we we focus on every single day in the city of Baltimore, understanding and recognizing that like the victims, the majority of the victims in the city are black and, and the majority of the perpetrators in the city right? Uh, also the same color. And we have to be sure to be able to effectuate our discretion in a way that is going to accommodate that specific case. And so, you know, that that's my perspective of justice. Justice is never black and white. Justice is, is ensuring that we're, if it means we're not going to put a little kid on the stand who has been sexually assaulted, you know, we're going to, ensure that that person is held accountable like you have to we have to weigh so many factors when it comes to these types of cases when it comes to criminal acts you know yeah yeah and lastly because i know um, i'm running out of time here but i'm sure there for some folks like folks like us are you know supportive, you know, of these type of units and supportive of a new view of justice. But then there are others who are not. How do you, how are you handling the backlash that may exist? And maybe I'm presumptuous that and there isn't any. And particularly as it pertains, I know here in New York, as it pertains to violent crime, like everybody is in theory supportive of reforming uh, the criminal justice system, but there's always this distinction of, oh, but not violent crime. <laughs> you know, like there's so that, like they have a distinction for like that. This, this is like this false sort of correlation to progressive policies and violent crime. And it frustrates me because we have all of the data that supports the fact that there's no correlation and nobody picks up on it. Yet we also want to default to what our position has been for decades. The, the default position is we got to go more police, more money for police, more mandatory minimums. And that has not worked. Right. Like, 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 let's stop doing what we've always done. You know, during the global pandemic, I came out in 2020 and basically said, you know, these minor offenses that have nothing to do with public safety drug possession and prostitution and trespassing, right? Like they can lead to a death sentence for black people in this country. And so like the status quo wants you to believe that we have to incarcerate individuals, not only when it has a disproportionate impact on black people, right? That can lead to a death sentence. And, and I said through Freddie Gray, who merely made eye contact with police in a high crime neighborhood decided to run, George Floyd, who was allegedly passing a, a $20 counterfeit bill during a global pandemic, whether it's Dante Wright, who either had air fresheners, his, his rear view mirror, or an expired tag during a global pandemic, right? These, these offenses have nothing to do with public safety. What, what are police officers trained to do? They are trained to respond to public safety issues. And to have an expectation that they're supposed to respond to behavioral health issues is unrealistic. And we've done that for yeah. decades and it hasn't worked. Right. And so yeah. that's why we came out and we basically said we're not going to prosecute these low 
minor offenses that have nothing to do with public safety. We're coming out of a global pandemic. We need to prioritize what we're going to prosecute in a city where we're only solving one out of four homicides a year. Like we need to prosecute. And what we've been able to do is we've increased the clearance rate or the solve rate for homicides. We've increased the solve rate for non-fatal shootings. And so that has to be the focus. And it's it's not, you know, something that where people feel comfortable because they're this is something different they're not used to. But in the city of Baltimore, we have a consent decree because there was a 163-page Department of Justice report that exposed a pattern of practice of discriminatory enforcement, right, against black and brown people uh, for, for, for the police department. And so what we have to be very careful about is ensuring that we are prioritizing the criminal justice system in a way in which we are really focusing on and ensuring racial equity and ensuring that we are going after the bad guys that are committing these offenses. Yeah. I, you know, I find it very interesting, as you mentioned in, in talking about your office, because you were able to reduce, you know, we're not prosecuting these other things. We're actually, the, the justice in that is actually getting the resources, the help, and putting them on the path that they need that is not a criminal response, right? And because we do that, we can actually focus our resources in, you know, prosecuting cases where we can prosecute shootings and murders and actually clear it and find the perpetrator and and handle that, right? And it, it reminds me, we've had law enforcement on the show before that talk about what you just said. One, I'm not trained. Why are you calling me? Correct. Because a homeless person is out on the stoop. Like, why are you calling me for that? What am I supposed to do about that? Right? Like, why shouldn't it be the response to be someone who is trained in terms of homeless services that then is able to connect that person with whatever resources they may need to find housing, to find food, to find mental health services, whatever they may be, you know, why does the police need to respond to that. And it's us as the public being able, because again, we've been conditioned, right? Yep. That yep. any of this happens, call the police. And it's everything from cat in the tree, homeless person on my stoop to there was just a shooting on the corner. And one of like, even one of the annoyances, I don't know if you know this, I am so annoyed by this. Like if you can't sit on your own stoop in Brooklyn and like drink a glass of wine and like, it's, obviously more prosecuted in communities of color and black communities than it is everywhere else. I'm like, I'm sorry, I paid how much for this house and I Correct. can't sit on my feet. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, why are you calling the police to respond to that, right? I need you to be out there solving rape cases, which don't have a high clearance rate. I need you to be out there like solving you know, shootings and murders and other things, not getting cats out of tree and coming to talk to me about my Shiraz. And you're absolutely right. And that that was the point. And like, sometimes you have to force that sort of that that approach. And that's what I've been willing to do in the the city of Baltimore. And I get the I get the backlash for it, too. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Because that has been our default position for so long. And people are like, well, what else are we supposed to do? Well, I have partnerships with behavioral health experts that can respond to these behavioral health issues, right? Like, let's figure this out so that we don't have an individual who is performing sex work on your block. She's going to be locked up 
And she's going to be right back on a block the same the next day. Like, let's address what her issues are, her concerns, whether it's housing, whether it's substance use disorder. Like, let's figure this out. Like, we got to do something different. And it's really hard. Like, change, I, I understand and I recognize people are resistant to change. I, I, I've been at the forefront of, of that, even when I charged the six officers for the death of a Black man in 2015 before a lot of other prosecutors in the country were doing it. So I get that their people are resistant to it. But the problem is, like, we have to be open to trying a different result. And what the data has showed is that crime has not increased as a result of these policies, right? Yeah. yeah. And so if crime has not increased as a result of these, these policies, like, we need to ensure that we're putting enough resources to address the issues at hand. Yeah. And to not only focus it on the criminal in terms of violence and other things that we deem morally wrong, but often I'm internally upset about we've placed so much a focus on other crimes that we deem morally wrong and financial crimes that can have <laughs> devastating effects on a community, so-called white-collar crimes or others that also have ripple effects in terms of people's lives, but we see that as a different type of crime, right? That's, that's different and doesn't need to be handled or prosecuted as harshly, you know, as someone who's performing sex work or selling weed or something like that. And, you know, I watch American Greed. Some of them people, I'm like, put them under the jail. <laughs> you know, because they have robbed people of their livelihoods, right? Like, and I'm like, okay, so dude selling weed on the corner versus dude who did this Ponzi scheme and robbed all of these elderly people of their retirement, put him under the jail. Correct. And you know what's so crazy, Joy? I, I was like one of the first prosecutors in the in the country when I decided like we have the most progressive sort of marijuana policy in, in the nation, right? I said, regardless of how much marijuana or regardless of criminal history, we ain't prosecuting mere possession, not drug distribution. You, you selling drugs, we're going to prosecute you. But mere possession of marijuana in the city of Baltimore any longer because nationwide, you're four times more likely as a Black person to be arrested for mere possession of marijuana. In the city of Baltimore, you were six times more likely to be, you know, arrested for mere possession of marijuana. But what was so crazy is even after we decriminalized it for 10 grams or less, 42% of the citations that were issued were issued in one out of nine police districts. 42%, one out of nine police districts, which happens to be 95% black and disproportionately impoverished. And what I said is that, guess what? I represent 1% of all elected prosecutors in the country. I don't have to go through cultural sensitivity training and implicit bias training to know how Black people are treated by the police in this, in, in this country. And I'm not going to be complicit in the discriminatory enforcement of laws against poor Black and brown people. So we're going to stop prosecuting marijuana. We're going to stop prosecuting these minor offenses that have nothing to do with, with public safety in the city of Baltimore. Yeah. So, I, you know, for folks who have not watched American Greed, you can watch some of those and Correct. I would much rather put some of these dudes like in jail for longer sentences than I would like. And they have more of a man. harmful impact on people and people's lives, right? 
Okay. Yeah. 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 Yes. Absolutely. Sometimes like wiping out people's whole and then the restitution of that, right? Like just in some of these financial crimes. And it just boggles my mind how they are not seen or perceived, you know, that same way. You robbing someone of their retirement, of their home, you know, of things like that, like it has so much devastating. But did you watch of- Dave Chappelle? <laughs> right. You watch Dave Chappelle? When he I did. Okay. That's what this is. That's what is. And that's the beauty of like comedian is that they're really able to make you like be reflective about what is real in in our country. Right. Like it's a totally different sort of standard. And that's what I'm attempting to do and attempting to change in the criminal justice system, just utilizing my power and my authority. And that makes me a target. And I get it. But like. It's so much greater than me. It's about what I represent to equity in the criminal justice system, what I represent to black people, you know, in this country. And so I'm willing to do it, (laughs) take take my bumps and my bruises. But we have so much more work to do. And that's what the Conviction Integrity Unit does through, you know, exonerating those that are wrongly convicted and incarcerated. And that's also what the Sentencing Review Unit does and looking at elderly prison populations and those individuals that are juvenile lifers, right? Like in saying, hey, are these individuals even posing a public safety risk at this point? They've served 40 years incarceration. Like people deserve a second chance at life and ensuring that the individuals that were impacted, those victims, get some sort of restorative justice relief. Well, State's Attorney, thank you so very much for taking the time with us. And I feel blessed that I got so much time with you today <laughs> and the conversation and, you know, being in our virtual classroom and talking to people about the need for these. And as I mentioned, these and, and you mentioned, this is not something that is housed in every prosecutor's office across nope. the country. So what would you say as, you know, the the students here in this classroom, what should they go out and they're listening from all over the country? You know, what, in your view, should they be demanding as it pertains to this issue? I mean, I think they should be demanding more from their local prosecutors. I think, you know, through the past few years, we've recognized that the importance of a prosecutor locally, like we determine who is going to sit in that position we determine what the agenda is going to be and we want a more fair and equitable criminal justice system, right? One that is going to reflect, you know, one standard of justice, whether it's an individual that is, you know, has killed somebody or recently we had a 69-year-old woman that was killed in a church in East Baltimore, right? I'm going to hold him to account the same way I would a police officer who was planting guns and drugs on citizens for decades and abusing their authority. We need that one standard of justice. And so the one thing I will say is that we need folks to understand the importance of their local prosecutors and the power that they have to be able to ensure equal justice on a day-to-day basis. Well, we wish you safety (laughs) as you continue the a good fight, and thank you so very much for taking the time. You too, and please stay safe. You too. All right. God bless. Bye. We'll be right back. How can it be? 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, and we just finished a wonderful conversation with State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby from Baltimore City. And I'm so glad that she got to spend some extended time with us because she normally doesn't do interviews that long, but thankfully she felt comfortable enough to have this conversation with us regarding conviction review units, sentencing review units. And so I just want to take some time to recap what we were talking about and the definition of the two separate entities. One is the conviction review unit, and those are units that are within a prosecutor's office or even an attorney general's office, and they are tasked with, they have experienced prosecutors, lawyers, a whole team, reviewing past cases in which the sentence or the conviction itself were in question, meaning that the person didn't commit the crime. And it has been known, and there is some information and evidence that exists that the person that was convicted of the crime did not actually commit that crime. And most often it's due to a claim of actual innocence. And so that is a conviction review in it. And you heard State's Attorney Mosby talk about one of those examples of someone who was serving time who did not commit the crime And that is what a conviction review unit is tasked with. Now, a sentencing review unit, and again, they can be named slightly different in different uh, counties, areas. A sentencing review unit is looking at someone's sentence. And these are, again, in prosecutor's offices. It's looking at the sentence that the person or persons received and looking and saying, was that erroneous? Was it too much? Um, And should we bring it more in line with trying to either reduce population of those who are incarcerated? It did not fit the crime in sometimes people. I'll give you an example, perfect example of someone who was present and at the crime, but actually didn't commit the crime, say it's a murder or assault or anything like that. And then they end up getting like life compared to other instances. So it's really looking at the sentence that people received based upon the crime that was committed and really if it fits. Now, what can we do? Because we're all not prosecutors. All of us are not lawyers. And so what can we do as general citizens, as general people, to demand that our local prosecutor offices have this? Because as we're talking about it, and as you heard both State's Attorney Mosby talk about, you also heard the clip from Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez You have to convince prosecutors, whether it's the state's attorney, attorney general, or district attorney, that they actually need to set up these units in their offices. It's not everywhere. Every prosecutor's office in this country does not have these units. And there may be other projects or nonprofit organizations. You may be familiar with something like the Innocence Project, right, which is bringing information to light and 
if you watch any of those stories, whether it's stories on Netflix or A&E or others, you see nonprofit organizations or local attorneys or NAACPs or other entities trying to push forth these issues and really to either exonerate someone who was actually innocent or to get a sentence reduced because the sentence didn't actually match the crime. But what we can do, because in most places, district's attorneys are elected officials, is you can take an opportunity to look and see if the county, if the area that you live in actually has one or both of these units, if they do, and this is what I'm talking about, communicating with those who represent you, because district attorneys, elected prosecutors, represent the people. That's what they say when they <laughs> go into court, they're representing the people. Then you can communicate to them, one, Thank you for setting up these units. Now, there can be a difference getting into the details of it and we'll have some of the advocates for uh, conviction review and sentencing review maybe on a later show. There are prosecutor offices that maybe do have these units, but they are called uh, conviction review and name only, meaning that they have the unit set up, but they haven't really done significant work. It's really to press statements. They're not really engaging in the work to actually look at past practices, to look at past cases in a serious way. And so when you go to the website, sundaycivics.org, and you look at the page for this episode, there are going to be some resources there that you can take, and particularly if you are a clergy person, a local NAACP branch, or other entities, you can look at these surveys of the conviction review units and the sentencing review units that exist across the country and see the work that they are engaged in. It's like a scorecard. There are independent entities that look at these units to see the work that they're actually doing and whether or not it's making a difference. And so for those prosecutor offices, those district attorney offices where they are doing a good job, the civic action can be to that elected official. Thank you for setting up these units. But then it can also be to the mayor, to the city or to the state and saying, we need more resources for these prosecutor's office to be able to do this work. And that come that only comes with having a communication with your elected officials, including district attorneys, which are often <laughs> elected officials in places across the country. Some are appointed, but there are a lot across the country that are elected offices as well. So you want to be in communication and see what that office is doing because they'll be coming around and asking for your vote and they'll be talking about their clearance rate and how many people they were able to put in jail or how many cases they were able to solve. This can be one of those additional things that you ask, well, did you also set up a conviction review and a sentencing review unit? What has been the process progress so far? Are there any trends that you have uncovered where people have been erroneously over a specific, a specific dead decade or something like that? 
were sentenced to longer sentences? Are we reviewing all of those cases? So there's an opportunity there. And another question that you can ask those who will be coming before you for your vote when a district attorney or state's attorney is up for um, election in the near future, something else that you can ask them from there. The other thing um, to highlight is to then go to your state, right? To go to your state representatives, your county representatives, and maybe there is legislation that can be enacted that says on the state level or in the county level, this would be on the state level, to, to be on the state level to say every prosecutor office in this state must have a conviction review and a sentencing review unit. And these are the, the guidelines or the best practices that they can have. Legislation can be passed on the state level saying that, that every office, rather than going individually to the district attorney, the state's attorney, the county prosecutor, or what have you, you can go directly to the state level and pass legislation and say the state, every prosecutor's office must have these units and then being able to provide the resources for them to do that work as well. So there are two options here, maybe included in your legislative agenda for the upcoming year of really looking at, do these entities exist where you live? If they do, looking at an evaluation of them, making sure that there's additional resources for them if need be. And then the second is going higher and going to the state level and passing legislation, enacting legislation that says that every prosecutor's office must have these two units and providing the funding necessary for them to do it. Because that's really important. The funding piece is really important because if you say every unit must have these things, they can create it and it'll be a name only because their excuse will be, well, we don't have the resources to actually do it effectively. So you want to make sure you not only have the unit set up and make sure they're set up properly, but then also ensure that they have the resources to actually be dedicated and earmarked for them to actually complete this work. So listen, that I am really grateful to State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby for taking the time to have a conversation with us. If you have not already, you can go back to episode, I believe it's 73, where we had a conversation with Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez. It was part of our Who We Elect series and what the responsibility of a district attorney actually is. So you can go back to that lesson as a refresher. And I want to thank you for joining us again this Sunday morning, coming to class faithfully, a faithful student. I love it. Um, and joining us here in the Sunday Civics classroom. We'll be back next Sunday with more lessons, more ways for you to take civic action. Thank you so very much for joining us. Have a good one. It's cool.